Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask for your help this morning to hear. Uh, Lord, we ask that your spirit would be at work among us. We pray that you'd strengthen us in our faith. Thank you for the gift of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask you a question. What is the most important decision you will have to make today? Don't worry about shouting out answers. Or what is the most important decision you have made all year? Or what are or is the most important decision you will make in your life. I'm going to suggest this morning that the most important decision you will ever make is the answer that you give to this question. What do I believe about the Jesus of the Bible? Do I believe that he is the divine son of God and the hope for all people? Do I believe that he is God's chosen king, appointed to rule the world? The reason I say that this is going to be the most important decision you will ever make is because Jesus himself sets the stakes this high when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is to say, no one goes to heaven except through a correct understanding of and a correct response to me, says Jesus. No one gets God as friend except through me, says Jesus. Or, as John says in another place, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The stakes for this question are unbelievably high. On the one hand is held out unimprovable joy that never ends in God's presence, ages upon ages of God showing the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Eternal life. On the other hand, the book of Revelation tells us that those who reject the Son will call to the rocks and the mountains and say, quote, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Eternal life, eternal death. The stakes are high. The question is, what do we believe about Jesus of Nazareth? Is he the Christ, the Son of God, or is he not? Now, we're going to spend our time this morning focusing on verses 19 through to 28. So if you just take a peek down at the 
text there in front of you, uh, you'll see that it starts with the heading, John the Baptist denies being the Messiah. We're going to focus on that little section, but let's start by orienting ourselves to some of the details. Now, it will help uh, us all, and probably more so you, to know from the outset that there are two Johns in this sermon. John is the writer of the Gospel, and I'll refer to him as John the Apostle to help with the confusion. So, John the Apostle focuses our attention in these verses on this other man, John. Look there in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. We know from the Gospel of Luke that this John is the son of a Levitical priest named Zechariah, which is another way of saying he's part of a really important family tree. And we know that John's birth was surrounded by prophecy, miracle and intrigue. His mother was probably past the age of childbearing when she uh, when John was conceived, uh, a pattern in the Bible which signifies God was doing something special uh, with this child. And so from before his birth, there was an air of excitement about him. We also know from the Gospel of Mark that by the time uh, John was an adult, many people believed him to be a prophet. Now, during this time period in Israel's history, there were various groups with various hopes uh, and theories about biblical end-time figures. Uh, and we see some of these in our text. For example, they, they come to ask him, are you the Christ? Uh, that means, are you the anointed one? Are you the chosen one of God? Or uh, they ask him about being the prophet. That is, are you the one uh, about whom Moses in the book of Deuteronomy spoke uh, who would come after Moses and be a prophet like him. Or we hear of Elijah, which is probably a reference to a prophecy uh, in the, in the um, book of Malachi, in which the Lord says that he will send Elijah before the great day of the Lord. So see, these are some of these biblical end-time figures. Now this John has generated enough of a fuss that he warrants a delegation being sent from the religious police in Jerusalem to question him about these big category figures. Are you one of these figures? The point here is, and we need to grasp this, John is kind of a big deal. He had a father who was made mute by an angel for nine months while he was in the belly, Prophecies about the Lord's hand being upon him. A mother, as I've already described, as being very old in the Bible when he was conceived. He's living in the wilderness, dressed like a prophet with a massive following. And he's got this high-profile delegation from Jerusalem sent to find out if he's an end-time figure in the category of the Christ. We have to grasp that John is a really big deal. But John's response is that he's none of these figures. So who then are you, John, they say. And here is where John drops a bomb. He says, in effect, I am an end time figure. But I'm this one. 
I'm the Isaiah 40 voice crying out in the wilderness. Now, what does that mean? Well, it'll help at this point in order for us to feel the weight of that statement uh, to just um, recap a few points about uh, Isaiah itself. So, sidebar on Isaiah. The book of Isaiah itself divides fairly easily in half, chapters 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 66. Some commentators speak about the first half of the book as the book of judgment and the second half of the book as the book of comfort. Now, while I don't think it's quite as neat as this, it's still a helpful analysis of the book and we can at least say that the first half majors on judgment and the second half majors on comfort and salvation. For example, in the second half of the book, verse chapters 40 to 66, that's the time when the exile will end. It's the time in Israel's history when Jerusalem will be restored and the nations will stream to its light. Uh, it's the time in the prophecy when the restored nation will feast freely on the Lord's delights. It's the time when God will save with his own right hand. This is the second half of Isaiah. And chapter 40 is a key turning point in that book. And we can see this ourselves if we turn there in our Bibles. So just flick in your Bible and we'll read it together to Isaiah chapter 40. This is to help us get a sense of who John is and what he means when he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. <clears throat> so, to John, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, if you're in your Bibles, it's on page uh, 724 in the Burgundy Bibles. Okay, so let's, uh, I'll read it out and you follow along with me. It says, comfort, comfort my people. So this is that you can, the turning point has start straight away. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She has been sufficiently punished for her sins. Then, verse 3, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John, by referring to himself as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, he is, in essence, saying that the back half of the book of Isaiah is now in motion. For those with ears to hear, this statement is extraordinary. The back half of the book of Isaiah is now in motion. But here's the key. The significance of the moment is not so much about John himself, but about the time that he represents. 
It's about the age that he represents. It's about the moment in history, in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, that John signifies. And we see this in Isaiah itself, where he says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. So the moment is what John signifies. And specifically to what comes after him. Did you catch that? He signifies this key moment in God's plan of redemption and specifically to what comes after his voice. And this is John's own testimony that we've read. If you look in verse 15 of um, the Gospel of John, so if you flick back to the book of John and you'll see here that this is what John says about himself. It's not about him, it's about what comes after him. It's about what he signifies. Look in verse 15. Are we there in our Bibles? John, back to the book of John. Verse 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me. Or in verse 26 of what we've just read this morning, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So what's the point? Why have we done all that? Well, the point is that John is a signpost. He's a signpost to what comes after him. Or, in the language of John the Apostle, he's a witness. John the Apostle has already clarified the role of John the Baptist, or perhaps in the Gospel of John, better termed John the Witness, in verses 6 to 8, in this same chapter that we've just, we've just read. So if you check there, you'll see. Look down. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 7. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So this is the language that John the Apostle uses to introduce this section about the inquiry into John the witness. Look, at, look again at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. You see that? That's what witnesses do. They give testimony. So what's going on? The reason why it's important to recognize John the Baptist or John the witness as that key figure and how important he is is because that is the measure of his um, uh, uh, the strength of his witness or his testimony as a witness. 
this major significant prophet that has arrived on the scene points to Jesus. He is a living prophet pointing to Jesus in the flesh, saying, I'm the Isaiah 40 guy who marks the, the moment of where, where the, 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 the wheel of history turns and God's salvation starts kicking into, into motion like it hasn't before, and I'm pointing to the one that you need to believe, the one who comes after me. And so why has John the Apostle included uh, John the Witness in this way? The reason is, is, is because it's part of John the Apostle's wider method in the Gospel. This is what he's doing in the Gospel. The whole Gospel of John, you see, is framed in part with a courtroom dynamic. There are witnesses. There are lots of witnesses right through the Gospel. I'll give you some examples. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says that Moses was a witness to him. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. In chapter 4, it's the Samaritan woman who's a witness to Jesus. Uh, it reads, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. In chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus says that his works are a witness to him. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The works are witnessing to me. In chapter 1, verse 45, uh, we, read, we find out that Scripture witnesses to Jesus. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. Scripture is a witness to Jesus. In chapter 12, verse 17, the whole crowd that saw Lazarus raised from the tomb are a witness. It reads, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. In chapter 15, verse 26, it's the Spirit of God who's a witness. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And the, in the next breath, it's the disciples who are the witness. He says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. There are people like the blind man in chapter 9 who are interrogated who was it that healed you? What is your testimony? There are all the signs that Jesus does in the gospel, providing evidence, and there's a significant amount of judgment language in the gospel. Judgment as in verdict, courtroom, judgment. The gospel of John is like Jesus is on trial and the evidence is coming in and the witnesses are being brought forth and John the Apostle brings in John the prophet baptizer to give his testimony. And this great prophet says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world.
And why has John done all this? He's done all of this, chapter 1, verse 7, so that through him, that's through John the Baptist, all might believe. It's all geared so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And if we do believe that our faith would be strengthened as we see that the evidence piles up. We can trust and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing we can have life in his name. So that is what's going on in these, ver- in these first verses. And just a couple of implications. First implication is that Christian faith is not a blind leap in the dark. We can see that by all the, the effort that has gone, has, has gone into this. It's not just a simply, sounds crazy, just believe. No, there's the historical record of the Old Testament prophets. There's the living witness of the living prophet John. There's the evidence of Jesus' miracles. There's the evidence of the resurrection from the dead. There's the evidence of the extraordinary growth of the church who carried a strange message uh, which um, is, is not, wouldn't be predicted to grow carrying such a message of, of self-denial, of future hope in a new creation, of rejoicing in suffering, of the free gift of forgiveness to any and all who believed, even the worst of sinners of the message of God's Son becoming a man and dying on a cruel and shameful cross in the place of sinners. It's not a blind leap. It's a leap with a basis. Second implication is that this reveals God's grace in giving us many good reasons to believe. God could have just dropped Jesus into the world and we should probably have recognised him purely uh, by, his, by the wisdom of his speech and the perfection of his life. But in God's grace, he gave more evidences. And we see this uh, character of God in Jesus' treatment of Thomas, often known as Doubting Thomas, uh, when Jesus offered to show Thomas the marks on his body as evidence that he truly was the same person who was crucified. Don't you see the kindness and the patience of Jesus there? Come on, man. You just saw me. You saw me get crucified. I'm here in the room. All right, I'll show you the marks in my body. Not a twin, not a replica. I'm the same one. Here's some more evidence. Third implication. This way of giving the evidence, perhaps you feel this little bit yourself, closes the door on a kind of, for want of a better phrase, scientific certainty. God gives enough evidence, bear with me, so that those with ears to hear can hear. Those with eyes to see can spot the signs. And this is how parables functioned. They both concealed and revealed the truth. For the hard heart who doesn't want to believe, there will always be a little back door to sneak out of, a little way to convince yourself that it's not quite true. That's how God's revealed himself. I think, 
He's revealed himself so that the humble would see. And this itself is the wisdom of God and confirms his glory for those who can see. It's not to speak of a secret knowledge, it's to speak of a knowledge available to all who will humble themselves. So that is the first purpose of John, in bringing out John the witness, in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But there is a surprise purpose in John the Apostle's method as well. And this is the second thing I think that John the Apostle wants to do here. This is in his method with witnesses. Because you see, it's not that Jesus is, Jesus is not the only one on trial in the Gospel of John. We are on trial too. We are being examined. And Jesus, and all the evidence pointing to him, is functioning like a litmus test for our hearts. You see, the litmus test of John's Gospel works like this. John starts by asking questions. They come to us implicitly as we read the narrative. They're questions like this. Is our will to do God's will? This is what Jesus is getting at in chapter 7, verse 17, when he's speaking to the Jews and he says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching that I have is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. I'll say that again so you can catch it. If your will is to do God's will, then you'll spot me as being a truth speaker. Implication? If your will, if you don't spot me, your will is not to do God's will. We're being interrogated. Or we get asked questions like this. Is God your father? Because Jesus says to the Jews, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. The implication being, if you don't love me, God can't be your father. Jesus is walking around, evidence is pointing at him, he is functioning as a litmus test on everybody's hearts. Or are we Jesus' sheep? Are we truly part of the flock of God? Because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Implication? If you don't hear the words of truth in my voice, you're not of my sheep. You're not a part of God's flock. Or are our deeds evil? Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Implication? If you're not coming to the light, it's because you don't want your works to be exposed. Your deeds are evil. If you're not coming to me, says Jesus... That's what's happening in your life. Or, do we seek the glory from one another or the glory that comes from God? Put another way, are we more concerned about what people think of us or what God thinks of us? Jesus says to some of the Jews, how can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Struggling to believe? He says, you're not believing me? You can't believe because you're not seeking the glory that comes from God. Isn't it interesting that when it comes to uh, the question of who Jesus is and deciding whether he's the Son of God, we never put ourselves in the dock. What are our motives for disbelieving? How crooked is my heart? Do I actually love God and want my sins forgiven? That's how the litmus test of John's gospel works. But what does it then show? It shows that it is not lack of evidence that is the human problem, but that our hearts are the problem. That's key. All the evidence has been brought in, but by the time we get to the end of the gospel, we see it's not that it's lack of evidence that's the problem. It's that our hearts are the problem. As the evidence piles up and more light gets shed on Jesus, more light also gets shed on our hearts. So where do we go from here? Well, if you've been tracking, it will be evident that if you do not believe Jesus, then he says you are in a pretty troubling situation. But there is a way out. And this is the grace of God. God has provided a means to be saved. And remarkably, the solution is to believe. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How? I think Jesus' picture of the snake on the pole is helpful here. The snake on the pole is uh, in the wilderness when Israel had just come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. Uh, they've been sent a plague of snakes the Israelites have been bitten by snakes um, and they're dying. They're in a helpless situation. They're dying from the snake bites. And Moses takes a snake, sticks it on a pole and holds it up. And then everybody that looks, to, looks up to the lifted up snake on the pole miraculously is healed by God. They're people in a helpless situation. They can't save themselves, bitten by a snake, dying. That's like us in our sin. Jesus says in John chapter 3, I'm like that snake lifted up on the cross. I am God's solution to the problem. This is how you may be healed. Look to the Son. Lifted up on the pole so that you might be healed from your unbelief. So that you might be healed from your selfish will. 
This is what John, uh, John talks about, John the Apostle talks about uh, receiving Jesus, about feeding on Jesus, about drinking from the living water that Jesus gives. As Tom's already said uh, this morning in his sermon to the children, that we believe on him, we receive him, trust his testimony. That is God's way out, remarkably. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look to the Son and believe in him. But, just one other note, don't get proud. You might also think at this point that because you believe that you had a good heart. But John goes to great lengths to stop us thinking this way. At point after point throughout the gospel, John makes it clear that anyone who does believe in Jesus has already had the prior work of God applied to their hearts. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom unless you have been born again. In John chapter 6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus repeatedly speaks about the sheep that are his as being those who have been given to him by the Father. He says, my Father, speaking of these sheep who hear his voice, says, my Father, who has given them to me? Yours they were, says Jesus, and you gave them to me. And even in John chapter 1, uh, on the page in front of us, in, chap- in verse 13, just after John has said, whoever did receive him had the right to become children of God, he then adds, in verse 13, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, <coughs> nor of a husband's will, but born of God. Born by the Spirit of God. His point is to show that all of us, when faced with Jesus, do not want him as our king. And this is partly what the Gospel of John is doing and what, and what the witness of John the witness is pointing towards as well. The world is on trial, Jew and Gentile, and what we do with Jesus is being revealed. Crucify him, they cried. Apart from the working of God's grace, we are all children of the devil, seeking glory from one another, living out our own wills, oblivious to the voice of the shepherd and doing evil deeds. Apart from the working power of God in our hearts, we are all in this boat. But by the grace of God, he has moved in our hearts to cause us to be born again. Children of God. He has given us ears to hear so that we can know the shepherd's voice and follow him. 
He has opened our blind eyes so that we can see the glory of the Lord being revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. I'll finish with John's own words from the end of the gospel. These things have been written and now said so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name.